welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week it is a win Wednesday. The 49ers have a winning record for the first time in the Kyle Shanahan era. And with me this week to tell us all about the most expensive thing he'd wear while playing football, it's Kyle Posey. Let me take these $1,500 Louis Vuitton socks off so I can record this podcast with you. That is, I'm, I'm confused for lots of reasons. One. <laughs> Uh, Louis Vuitton makes socks. Two, they are $1,500. Three, you own a pair. This is the chain of events that I'm confused about, Kyle. It's, uh, it's the Niners Nation salary, so I can't really speak too much about that. Oh, man. All right. We got to talk raise. But first, let's talk about a couple things. Okay, so OBJ, that watch is pretty ridiculous. He's wearing a 300 If you haven't heard, Odell Beckham Jr. wore a $350,000 watch while playing football. That is absurd. Just casually sporting a 350K watch. What do you think happened? Like, do you think he wakes up, opens his jewelry drawer, which clearly he has a bunch of, if he just sporting that on a Sunday and, and thinks, yeah, this one will go, this one will go fine today. If I lose it, eh, whatever. Yeah, I just, he, apparently he was saying he wants to wear it for him and that's that. So, hey, you know what, man? You do you. There's, there's some, I don't have enough money to even fathom what that could possibly be. Uh, so we'll just let OBJ be OBJ. Uh, but I think the other thing, uh, let's talk about the the drinking rule game. Did you play the Better Rivals drinking game while you were watching the game this Sunday? I did not. I should have because I feel like it would have. There's the crack. There it is. I feel like, yeah, you could have you could have gotten a little tips. You could have uh, you could have had some drinks in you. If you are unaware, we every year we do a Better Rivals drinking game. We've had one going now since I think like 2000, maybe 14, 15 or so. And we added a couple new rules this year, one of which we may have to revise already, because the Ford-Brooks rule, if you're 55 and you're off sides, you drink, we might need to extend to basically the entire offensive line. Because Nick Bosa lined up off sides, Solomon Thomas got uh, hit with an offsides penalty. Uh, it, was, uh, it was bad. It was all bad. But still, rule number three, the favorite one, the unearned offsides. That's still the best one, and that one's going to get you hammered on Sundays. Yeah, so about that Solomon Thomas play, how how do you do that? As as a defensive end, you are literally looking at the ball, and he is almost a half yard lined up offside. That is that's tough to do, man. He was he wanted an Eskimo kiss. Is really what he wanted <laughs> from the guard. He just wanted to touch noses. That's all. You know, he's a softer Solomon Thomas, and he's trying to share the love. I get it, man. I get it. Uh, but let's talk about this game because it is a one and O kind of a week. The 49ers defeat the Tampa Bay Buccaneers 31 to 17. And look, it wasn't pretty. The team seemed to vomit all over itself at times, but they found a way to win. And that's important because this was the first road win uh, in several years for Kyle Shanahan. Uh, well, a couple years for Kyle Shanahan, but several years for the 49ers. This was a game for that was really a beatable team. A team that if they were going to push for a playoff spot this year, they really should have won. And even though it wasn't pretty, they found a way to win, even if it was on the back of the, of the defense. Yeah, there is nothing wrong with winning ugly in the NFL. Good teams win ugly. Just look around the league. The Seahawks, who people think are going to be good this year, struggled to beat the Bengals. They probably shouldn't have beat the Bengals. The Rams, also in the NFC West, should probably have lost to the Carolina Panthers. And they found a way to pull it out. So if the 49ers end up 9-7, and 10-6, and six, nobody's going to remember how they beat the Bucs. It just matters that they beat the Bucs. 
All right, so let's get to the things that we think. These are the big takeaways that we thought were important to pull out from the game. Uh, and I'll start number one right off the top. It's that the plexiglass is extra bouncy. Because the 49ers last year, of course, were at the very, very bottom of the barrel when it came to turnovers. The, the, turnover was, the turnovers were terrible last year. I think overall they had, what, like seven turnovers, only two picks? And whenever you are historically bad at something, or historically good at something, you're going to regress to the mean. You're going to come back to roughly normal the following year. And this was the game where the 49ers could have and should have absolutely come back to normal. And that's exactly what they did when it came to turnovers. They were a turnover machine, capitalizing exactly where they should. They had four turnovers this game, three interceptions, and a fumble recovery. And overall, with famous Jameis being the Jameis Winston quarterback that he is, it was an outcome that you didn't necessarily expect but aren't surprised by. Not surprised a little bit by it. We talked about that a little bit last week where Jameis is going to give you an opportunity to make plays, and he did just that. The 49ers, I think you would agree, probably should have had more than four turnovers. Tavares Moore dropped one. Quan Alexander dropped one in his lap. And you could probably just go on and on, but they – I mean, like you mentioned, they regress and they're going and trending in the right direction. So it'll be interesting to see if they are able to. Well, we know they're not going to be able to keep this pace up. But if they can just have like a turnover and a half a game, that would be fantastic. Yeah, I mean, look, this is why you don't expect the Niners to be that historically bad for turnovers this year. It's also why, you know, you shouldn't expect George Kittle to have like another 1400 yard season, right? He's probably going to regress back down to like maybe 900 or 1100 yards. Still very good for a tight end. But not he's not going to sustain that historic pace. And the Niners aren't going to sustain a historic pace, whether it be for turnovers or against. You know, I, I do think it's something that they've focused on in the offseason. Because if you remember the preseason games, they were trying to strip the ball as often as they could. They were punching for the ball. They were grabbing for the ball. And before we get to the interceptions, let's just first talk about that forced fumble by Fred Warner. Because he peanut punched that fumble into existence. I mean, it was surgical. He was a boxer, and he saw his target, and he hit it, and that ball just popped straight the hell out, and, and that's, I think, it's a focus for the team. It's something I think they're emphasizing, and it paid off pretty early on in the red zone for the 49ers because that was a key stop. That was by far and away the best turnover of the day, and first of all, peanut punch, great line. I feel like that was even more more so of like a haymaker because he like cocked his arm back, and he, he made the play. It was great. And I, I would like you mentioned how the preseason they were they've been working on that. And he did that. I believe he did that against the Broncos in the week two. So it's good to see that everything that they're practicing is is coming to fruition in the games. A really big fan of what Warner was able to do. And yeah, early on, too. That's another thing. Getting those turnovers early on and the blocked punt was another one. Well, yeah, the block punt was really good. I know we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Mark Nazocha and why Germany may or may not hate you. But we'll, we'll get to that in just a little bit. <laughs> But let's talk about the interceptions, because the interceptions, I thought, were a, a really interesting dissection of Jameis Winston's game and or the Bucks game really in general. Because if you look at the first interception, which was the Richard Sherman pick six, the wide receiver just flat out ran the wrong route on that interception. This is something that I think Bruce Arians confirmed in the postgame when he said that the receiver just ran the wrong route. Now, all credit to Richard Sherman for avoiding a tackle and you know galloping into the end zone at the pace that he so elegantly can at his age. <laughs> but he, he, that, that, that was not a super skillful play from Richard Sherman. It turned into six and it was good, but he was really in the right place at the right time because ultimately a wide receiver made a mistake for Tampa Bay and it cost them dearly. 
which I think the 49ers did not take advantage of last year. They were not an opportunistic defense last year, and that's how you end up with only seven or whatever the amount of turnovers they have because other teams make these type of mistakes every game. And Richard Sherman, like you mentioned, he just happened to be in the right place at the right time. He was just staring at Jameis. He wasn't even really paying attention to the receiver, and he caught the ball. But that's what you have to do. And I was a little bit worried of when he fumbled – he like he was just strolling into the end zone, put the ball out, fumbled it. And luckily he was aware enough to pick it up. But who we that would have uh, that would have been fun to talk about if they lost that game. Oh, what's funny is I thought the exact same thing. So he's holding the ball out and he loses it. And my immediate thought was, oh, shit, it's a touchback. Like I thought yeah. he was going to because if he didn't pick that ball up, he recovered it luckily in the end zone. And so it ended up being OK. But yes. And, and Akella Witherspoon did the same thing on his pick six. He held the ball out. And I was like, talk the damn ball. <laughs> we are not good enough to be able to do that with the football. Okay, last year, let me ask you this. Last year, does that ball bounce out of the end zone for the 49ers defense? Oh, last year, Sherman doesn't even make that pick. <laughs> last, last year, Sherman tries to come back for that ball, and he slips because his Achilles can't actually pull oh on his heel. Yes. Uh, and then he actually nev he never gets to the ball, and the ball just falls incomplete. That's what happens last season. But you think of the second interception, the ball goes right through O.J. Howard's hands, and Nizacha is, again, right place at the right time. Should have been a completion, but ultimately it wasn't. And, and lastly, you've got Akello's interception, which was, I think, a forced interception, but not forced by the people that most people think it was forced by, which is either Akella Witherspoon or even Ford or Bosa. Ultimately, I think this was a DeForest Buckner play because he prevented the running back from getting into his route right away. He recognized that screen and he impeded that running back's path. And so now there's no one in that field except for Akella Witherspoon. And all of a sudden you've got to pick six. That is a very good point that not many people have brought up because, okay, you watch the game and you're watching it at the end of the game and you see these two guys coming off the edge and meeting at the quarterback, essentially, which is fair to assume that they were the ones to, you know, force Jameis to make that errant pass and it just fall into Witherspoon's lap. But as you mentioned, there was a screen pass and Buckner saw it. And most guys will. It drives me insane how when you're not blocked and you still feel like you're going to sprint towards a quarterback. Nope, that's not the reason. If you're not used to getting after the quarterback and all of a sudden you're getting after the quarterback, there's probably a reason for that. And Buckner was able to sniff it out. He he saw that stop the running back and. Jameis had to go another route, and Jameis, like only Jameis could, just kind of heaved it up, threw it up, and yeah, they're able to take advantage of that. But that's that's a really good point because that uh that should go into the the Buckner stat sheet, but you know we it's not gonna happen. Yeah, Buckner and Warner, I think, ultimately contributed towards that the running back not getting to a spot. But again, Akella Witherspoon, right place, right time, and now you've got a 49ers team that is you know what four sevenths of the way to their entire turnover total from last year. Uh, I am too lazy to divide four by seven, so I'm not going to do 57. it. Fifty-seven point one percent. I really hope that's accurate. Please tell me that's accurate. It is. It is. Oh God, I love it. I love it. Quick math. That's what we're all about here on, on the Better Rivals podcast. Um, you know, ultimately, I think when you think about what this means for the 49ers in their defense, I don't think it means they're any necessarily better or worse than they were last year. I think it means that they are actually taking advantage of some lucky breaks. Um, I mean, the 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 thing about the damn Bucks is that they also had a bunch of fumbles they didn't lose. I mean, they had a they had a muff snap, they had fumbles that were recovered by themselves, and the fumble luck could have gone the other way as well. 
and could have ultimately resulted in even more turnovers. So I think a little bit of this was the 49ers, but a lot of it was being at the right place at the right time. And it was about damn time the luck swung back their, back their way. Yeah, that's how that's how it should be. It should probably be 50 50 on the luck, whether it's interceptions, fumbles, what have you. So it's good. And next week, it's going to be the same thing. Like Dalton puts the ball in harm's way as well. But we'll get to that. All right. So let's talk about the the next thing you wanted to talk about, because this is going to be something that, you know, the uh, do you know about the, the Mullen stand in my basketball league, by the way? <laughs> let's hear it. Uh, so there's a guy who actually hasn't been there the last couple of weeks, but I play basketball on Friday mornings and he is another 49er fan. I love finding 49er fans in the wild, especially in Austin, Texas, but he is convinced that Jimmy Garoppolo is not the answer at quarterback and that Kyle Shanahan should start Nick Mullins. He is completely convinced. He will say that his chief argument is that Garoppolo is just not the guy. He's just not the guy. Mullins is a gamer. He's, you know, he, he would probably use a phrase like he's got some dog in him. You know, the things yes. that make little, little sense when you actually put them in a football context. And then you really think about what maybe that means. Uh, and, and so <laughs> I, I think about like what I would say to him and have arguments with him in my head about like, no, but if you just understand logic and reason, you would understand that Jimmy Garoppolo is actually a better person uh, or rather a better quarterback. So this first game, though is not going to be in the quiver of arguments that I'm going to pull out for Jimmy Garoppolo because he did not have a good game. He was inconsistent across the board, and unfortunately, it really hurt the team. Yeah, I don't think he played very well at all, and this is this is going to bring up the question. So if he keeps playing inconsistent, how long are we going to give him a pass, or at what point do we acknowledge, all right, this just is what it, this is who he is at this point. This is going to be a player that... He's, his ball placement isn't going to be shaky or spotty. It's not going to be consistent. He's going to be able to give you a good play. He's going to give you. He's going to be able to put your team in a position to win. But there's going to be some head scratchers there. There's going to be some missed throws, and ultimately, will you be stuck in QB purgatory? Like the worst, the worst phrase that you want to hear as a fan. Yeah, getting to eight and eight, not getting a good draft pick, but also not being so bad that you can't move on from from a quarterback. Ultimately, I think you've got to give Jimmy Garoppolo quite a bit of time, quite a bit of leadership. You think that he is a franchise quarterback. You got. You, I think you give him at least the year, unless something catastrophic happens and he continues to produce terrible performances week after week. Because the thing that he did while he was in San Francisco and even in New England was he was accurate in the intermediate area, especially not super accurate deep. But when you were looking at short and intermediate passes, that's where he was accurate. And his ball location in this game was just spotty at best. There were a couple plays that jumped out, mostly from a clean pocket, really, but a couple plays that jumped out. One was in the second quarter, he missed a wide open Kittle on a vertical route up the sideline off of play action. That's a money throw in Shanahan's offense, and, and he should have made that throw. Instead, Kittle's got to jump up, and the ball sails over his head, and it goes out of bounds. You think about the third quarter. The 49ers are getting the running game going on the ground. It's run, run, run. And then Shanahan comes at you with that play action pass. Goodwin is running past his man and Garoppolo puts this ball on his, on, on his back shoulder. If he puts it on the front side, if this is on target, then that might be a TD. And yes, Kyle Shanahan says he expects a catch because the ball was on frame. It hit him in the shoulder. But ultimately, I think that's on the QB 100%. If that's a well-thrown ball... That's, a t that's probably a touchdown with Goodwin speed. And then in the fourth quarter, you've got a really bad pass to Kendrick Bourne in the four-minute offense. It's your opening play. It's play action. 
It's a concept the Niners love to run, the burner concept, where you've got a streak on the left side, and then you've got Bourne coming across the middle of the field, and it's easy money, and he overthrows him. Um, and those are the throws that Jimmy Garoppolo expects to make. Those are the, th- the throws that he should make, and he just did not make them. And if he does, this could have been a blowout. And I've, I've heard a lot of this is on the coaching staff. This is on Kyle Shanahan. And I could not disagree more with that because I thought he called an excellent game. And I thought he put the team in position to create these, generate these big plays. And they were there for the taking. That play to Kittle up the sideline was a fantastic route combination. He had Dwelly, I believe, running a seam. And then Kittle came to the outside out. Like, I think it was on the bottom of the numbers wide open. Kittle is a phenomenal athlete. And if Kittle has to leap up with one hand and twist to just to try to get his hand on a pass. That is that is a problem. Um, as far as the Goodwin play. These, this is a good example of both things can be true. It can be a bad pass and it can also be a catchable ball. So Goodwin probably has to make that catch just so they can at least, you know, move the chains and keep it going. But if Jimmy G puts the ball on him and lets him continue running in full stride, good luck catching Goodwin. Like he, it looks like he had he had a probably a step and a half on the defender, and because he has to slow down, it makes it seem like the defender's closer. And then the born one, man, that that was tough because they probably just iced the game right there after that. They can just run it, run the clock down, probably to the two minute warning after that. So yeah, there was a lot. There was a lot of inconsistencies where he was throwing the ball just behind. He just wasn't on target, and that was an issue. But, you know, how much are we going to credit Todd Bowles for that? How much are we going to say no Dante Pettis, no Trent Taylor, who are the receivers that he is comfortable throwing to? And I, I feel like, I feel very confident in saying that. But, again, we'll, we'll know more about who Jimmy Garoppolo is once we get to week six and seven when we have a, a little bit more of a sample size. You know, how much credit do you give to Todd Bowles? I think you give him a lot of credit. I think especially early on in the game, Todd Bowles had Shanahan's number. I think the coverages that he was mixing in were relatively... I don't know if they were confusing Garoppolo, but they were mixed across the board. He was playing split safety looks, he was playing single high looks, and he was playing man. Uh, he was playing almost a third in each one of those coverages. And, and that, I think, is the way to attack him. When you look at the sack that Jimmy Garoppolo took, he took a sack because the Jimmy, I think Kyle Shanahan got a little cute. They got, he said he, they got caught in a blitz. They were sending players off the edge. Lakin Tomlinson was faking play action and got tripped up. He was supposed to help on the other side, and he got hit by Weston Richburg, who was doing his thing about getting pushed in the backfield. And (laughs) and all of a sudden, he can't get to to the edge, and Raheem Mostert's blocking two, and he doesn't know what to do. Um, I do think Todd Bowles played a really good, uh, or he called a really good game, especially early, and he had the 49ers off kilter a little bit. Definitely, yeah. Richburg, uh, Richburg and Vita Vea was not the greatest matchup. He was getting walked back quite a bit, and yeah, Lakin Thompson, he just he just kind of tripped over Richburg's feet, and then Moster had an opportunity to block somebody, but he just didn't. And it, I was I was kind of wondering, maybe is that why we don't see as much Moster because he didn't look crazy comfortable in pass protection. So I wonder if it'll be more on Brita because I do think Mostert is a very capable runner and we'll get into that. But yeah, I just just wonder about uh, his pass protection. Yeah, I think that he, I don't know what his pass protection is like. I'm actually looking it up right now to see what what his grade might be in pass protection last year. But I mean, he's a special teamer and he's a running back that I think uh, can actually produce some yardage. So I'm not, I'm not too worried about Mostert, um, especially because I know Brita has got some solid pass blocking grades when it comes into, uh, when it comes in this offense. Uh, And look at that. 
through the magic of the internet, I've looked it up. If you look at his pass block grade, Raheem Mostert last year had a 74.3 grade, which is uh, above... At, oh, no, he had a 60 grade last year. 74.3 was his pass receiving grade. But that's about average, uh, which is, you know, not bad, not great. Um, but, you know, just about showed it against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So let's get to the other part of the defense because we've talked about coverage. And now we're going to talk about the run game because it seemed like during stretches in this game, the the Tampa Bay Buccaneers could do whatever they wanted to the 49ers on the ground. And ultimately, they allowed 46 yards before contact, meaning that there were 46 free yards for the Tampa Bay Bucks before they were ever touched. And I think that the key question is how, because this was supposed to be a dominant defensive line. This was supposed to be a team that you know was strong up front, and yet they get to Tampa Bay, and it's, they seem to be getting gashed regularly for 6, 7, 12, and 13-yard runs. Yeah, I think the most concerning part about that was it was all happening consecutively. So there was like 10, 13, 7, 8 drive. Like there was, I think it was two drives in a row that was that really hurt them. And I think this also shows the value of running and passing where Tampa Bay could they could run on the 49ers defense whenever they wanted to. But that this doesn't matter in today's NFL. And I I don't know how worried I would be about that just because in key situations so as i believe if we go to right the play right before armstead had a sack i believe it was the third quarter armstead or sorry deforest buckner makes a play makes a tackle for loss after beating his man minus negative two yards and now next play sack drive stop so just all it takes is one play to get them off track get them off kilter but yeah i don't know what was going on or why that was the case because i in my opinion sheldon day dj jones and like eric armstead these guys are good run defenders obviously buckner but yeah that just wasn't the case and it's not like tampa bay is throwing out you know the colts line or somebody that can just maul you out of the way they just they just ran right at them and had their way yeah, the, the Bucks had 26 carries for 121 total yards. They averaged 4.6 yards a carry. And I mean, you look at their run distribution, and it was a little bit of everything. But really, the, the runs that really gashed the Niners were the ones that were right up the middle to either side, um, or, or really to, to the weak side. And that's where they started running initially. So you think of the wide nine, and if you listen to our Ski Month episode, you know that the wide nine's weakness is really in that bubble from the one technique or the two eye, depending on how you're playing it, over to the nine technique. That bubble puts a lot of stress on your linebacker. And that's exactly where the Tampa Bay Buccaneers attacked repeatedly, especially early on. You saw a lot of inside zone, a lot of man blocking schemes, and plenty of double teams at the point of attack. And this was just repetitive over and over and over again. And quite frankly, it didn't matter who was there, whether it was DeForest Buckner, whether it was Day, whether it was DJ Jones, whether it was Solomon Thomas at times, or whether it was Armstead, because all of those players had snaps along the interior, they were getting blown off the line. And it wasn't until someone was able to handle the double team that they were able to stop the run, and they did at times, but it wasn't consistent enough to stop the running game. Yeah, the only reason that they were able to stop the run, honestly, was because Buckner split a double team. And I saw some people say that, well, this is where we really miss Quan Alexander. Well, Quan Alexander isn't... (laughs) isn't the greatest run stuffing linebacker. Um, they, what I would say is even like you could have the, the greatest linebacker there, but he, he filled the out like Nazicia who, um, who Nizacha. else Warner was doing a very, <laughs> Warner, 
Warner's it's okay. doing a very not, good job. Not pronouncing names correctly on the Better Rivals podcast is part of the brand. So you're just you're wow. just on brand. Oh, we are terrible at names. Trust me. Um, What's crazy is you've said it like four times. Yeah, and but I with, still would have no idea how to say it. Honestly, like unless you're Polish or Ukrainian, putting a Z in the <laughs> middle of a name is just hard for anyone, man. It's it's hard for anyone. So I get I'm it, man. Call him Mark. The struggle is real. Just call him Mark Germany. It'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah, so Germany was in there filling the hole, being aggressive. Like, and he wasn't doing anything wrong. It just when you're running at Lyman and they have a clean shot at you, you're not going to have a good chance to stop the run. That's really all it was. So, like I mentioned, Buckner splits a double. They they force Tampa Bay to pass. But yeah, just the, that's the wide nine, and that's what what is going to be like when you are singled up like that, and there's so much space. Team is going to run directly at you, which is fine. I, and I think that that. The game plan was right by Arians to run directly to the middle of that 49ers defense, but I don't know that it was necessarily the wide nine that was the result of the success for the Buccaneers because this was probably the the worst game I've seen DeForest Buckner play in a long time. He was consistently pushed off the line of scrimmage from Bucks double teams. I mean, you've got the left guard, Ali Marpet, the center, Ryan Jensen, right guard, Alex Kappa. They all had very, very good run blocking games. And it wasn't just DeForest Buckner because Solomon Thomas got pushed around. DJ Jones also, uh, he split a double team and was able to get uh, a run stop in there or contribute to a run stop. But ultimately, those plays didn't come consistent enough. I mean, I'm going to post some plays here on, on Twitter in a little bit, but you just see Buckner, who's usually very, very good at handling double teams, just getting washed out of the play. And, and when your running back is able to run almost two yards per play before he even gets touched... And it doesn't matter whether your linebacker is is flowing over, whether he's trying to cut in or whatever. It's just not good. You know, we said earlier that the 49ers allowed 46 yards before contact. But that average is based on the number of rushes they had to 1.77 yards of carry. So you're telling me that Ronald Jones basically had a free almost two yards before he was even touched by a defender. And then he could do whatever he needed to in terms of breaking a tackle or falling forward. Uh, and, and that's ultimately how a team rushes for 4.7 yards of carry. Yeah, I agree with that. And the thing about Buckner is when he was taking on these double teams, he's not staying square. So he's like turning his shoulders and that allows him to be moved even easier. And then he's being backed up into the linebackers like that was a problem. And I I am the biggest Buckner fan in the world. I loved him coming out of college. I've always followed him, even with the 49ers. And that has been a thing that he's done. So seeing it now, it, it was a little more exaggerated. But yeah, he has to fix that for sure. No, totally agree with you. Uh, I, I do notice that thing too, where he actually uses his leg to brace. He kind of turns his knee in a little bit and he uses his shoulder to try to brace and hold. Um, but in this case, it just meant that he got washed out of the play. Uh, and so ultimately, you know, it, it is something I think to keep an eye on over the course of the season, whether or not the Niners are susceptible to runs up the middle. Um, but I think you maybe brought up the, the key point here earlier, which is, but at the end of the day, will it matter? You look at the Jacksonville Jaguars in 2017, and they were terrible against the run. They still are terrible against the run. But as long as your pass defense is good, then ultimately you can overcome that. I think the pass defense had a good game against Tampa Bay. But let's not go ahead and crown them yet. Let's, it's the Denny Green rule. Let's wait Best and see pass a little defense bit more. ever. I know. I know. Uh, all right, let's get to your last point, Kyle, because you've got some unsung heroes you want to talk about in this game. Yes, I do. And we can start with Mark Germany there because he did a great job of blocking a punt to start the game. Like that is how you start a season right there. You push the defender back basically like 12 yards and he's able to get a hand up, deflect the deflect the kick, 
three-yard punt. And opportunistic, something that the defense was not last year. So he was in the right spot at the right time. He, he did a good job of breaking on the pass. It goes right through Howard's hands, but he catches it. Like he Being able to be in the right spot, it should count for something. And I think most of all, being thrown in the wolves, he, he probably didn't expect to play, I think it was 16 snaps. He There's no way he expected to play that much on defense, which is not a lot. But he didn't seem out of his depth, and I think we should commend him for that, for at least being a serviceable, competent player. Like That speaks to the improvement of the roster. So, yeah, shout out to you, Mark Germany, from here on out for being one of the unsung heroes. Um, The next guy, Raheem Mostert, who I think is a very good runner. I think he is the type of runner that the 49ers could use to close out out games. And he did that. He could have had – a lot better game if he didn't have a run called back. He had a nice run to end the game where he he stiff-armed a guy. He forced a few missed tackles. He also just looked fast. He played fast, saw some holes, nice cutback, a couple nice cutback runs. He just looked like an NFL running back. And way back when I was talking to Rob about this, where we were wondering if uh, Rob Louder on Niners Nation, I was wondering if he would be, you know, if he would get playing time on any other backfield because the 49ers at the time were so deep. And I, I think we kind of saw his talent, uh, his, t- his talent on Sunday. How do, you, how do you feel about Mostert? I think Raheem Mostert is another example of the availability of quality running back skill in the NFL. This is why running backs don't get paid a ton of money. It's because that skill is relatively findable. And Raheem Mostert is another example of that. I agree with you. I think he played very well. I think he broke tackles uh, and he, I mean, this guy was very, very elusive against Tampa Bay. He forced four missed tackles on just nine runs. So basically, I mean, every other run, he's making someone miss. He's playing basketball with dude's faces on stiff arms. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it's great. For players with at least 10 rush attempts, Mostert was ninth in the NFL with 4.22 yards after contact. That's better than household names like Austin Eckler, Saquon Barkley, and Philip Lindsay. And so, I mean, you're, you're telling me that this guy is or is as elusive as these guys, and I believe it because he is. Uh, and I think this is another example of the, the 49ers being able to find running back talent, plugging them in, and having them succeed. And I'm glad he's on the roster, quite frankly, because the Niners are going to need it, especially with Tevin Coleman's injury. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. He's going to have he's going to probably carry the ball 10 to 15 times now with Coleman out. It's pretty clear that, you know, they like Brita, but they don't want to rely heavily on Brita to carry the ball over 20 times, which is fine. And when you say when you compare some of it, when you compare Mostert and his name to a guy like Eckler, Barkley or Lindsay, it probably seems hyperbolic. But we don't know about these guys until they get an opportunity. So I like that. I think it's fair. Because Mostert proved, and he's proven in the preseason. I know it's a preseason, but when they give him the ball, he does good things. He moves the, he moves the chains. I think that Raheem Mostert is the perfect type of running back for a team that wants to spend its money somewhere else. He's a good special teams player. He's elusive. He's fast. He's a good runner, especially if you give him a good offensive line. This is where you get value out of the running back spot so you can put it in other places <laughs> and spend that money at like wide receiver or quarterback or defensive end or cornerback because that's winning on the margins, right? When you get value from your non-headline players, when you can plug in someone like a Raheem Mostert or you can plug in someone like Matt Breida, um, you don't spend money there. You spend money somewhere else. You spend money on the Julio Joneses of the world, uh, and that's ultimately how uh, you end up winning in the NFL, I think. All right, but let's get to the player of the game because we've got two players here. Uh, I'll actually have you start first. 
uh, that we think really made the game for the 49ers. Uh, so give me your player of the game. Let's go. Um, first off, you know that somebody's going to respond to you still that the 49ers should go out and get Melvin Gordon, despite everything you just said. I'm trying. I'm trying to. I I was subtweeting Melvin Gordon is basically what I was doing. <laughs> I was I was if you like if you anagram all of the words, if you play that segment backwards, it's actually me saying don't sign Melvin Gordon on repeat on repeat. Um, not only that would be a mistake for multiple reasons. One, because you would have to trade draft capital to do it. But then on top of that, you'd probably have to pay him top of the market running back dollars when we already pay between Jarek McKinnon, Tevin Coleman, and everyone else top 10 percentage of cap running back dollars. There's no reason to add to that currently. Um, So, I mean, this is not going to be like a nine running back offense. So let's 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 stay away from that. Why did you trigger me, dude? Why did you push that button? I'm trying to get I, to play. I'm trying to get I to George Kittle. I see the blood boiling right now, and it was so worth it. And there's no doubt that this is going to be a weekly thing. I I am I am now channeling uh, David Spirit. Uh, long may, long may he prosper. You know, praise be. Oh, man. let's get to my George Kittle. Let's talk game, about fun things. Yes, my player of the game is George Kittle because I think that the 49ers. It was pretty clear that Shanahan didn't really trust anybody else when he put the ball in the air. Kittle was the, I believe he was the only person to get a red zone target. He just looked like the best player on the field. He had two touchdowns called back. The one where he ran over the safety was a highlight waiting to happen. How, how, how do you feel for that safety, man? He's, he's at a standstill. Kittle catches the ball and he just kind of ducks his head and kind of prays and hopes that, Please run into me. Please run into me. Oh, he ran into me. Oh, there he goes. Like It was just all bad for him. Kittle had a great line in, in, in an interview. I forget if it was in The Athletic or if it was uh, maybe in in the sack B. I'm not sure. Oh, no, it wasn't the sack B. I think it was The Athletic. But he said, uh, you want to make people tackle you. And like you, you, I'm not going to get tackled. I'm going to make you tackle me. And that's exactly the conversation he had with that poor safety. And that poor safety rendered mute. After that, because it was it was not good. That safety did not want problems with Kittle. It's a business decision. Yes, it was. So Kittle caught eight, was targeted ten times, which was twice as much as there were anybody else. He had eight catches for fifty four yards. Should have had much much more than that. Still, four first downs. That is a big deal because they had trouble moving the ball on third down and. First of all, I hate the idea of running on third and short when you have this type of skill players that they have. If you have George Kittle on the field on third and two, third and three, throw him the ball. And they finally figured that out. And he just he made him pay like he was able to. It doesn't have to be these splash plays. They just need to move the chains. And that's exactly what Kittle did. They, they threw him a slant defender all over him. That doesn't matter with a guy like Kittle. So that was a reason. Obviously, the touchdowns would have been nice, but to be to be able to have a consistent threat in the passing game like Kittle, uh, he was the player of the game for me. The player of the game for me is Akella Witherspoon. We are back on that Akella Witherspoon train. Uh, he allowed. Choo-choo. That's right. Hey, that's that. The train is reserved for anyone who needs it. That was a Matt Breida train. Now we got an Akella Witherspoon train. <laughs> uh, he allowed a four point nine NFL passer rating into coverage. And while, yes, he did have that pick six, we've talked about how it was a little bit of the right place at the right time. Really, his forced incompletions were his best plays. When you think of the deep pass to against Mike Evans, where he is 
carrying Mike Evans up the sideline. He's turning for the ball. He's squeezing Mike Evans on that red line, using the defender, and then at the last second, uses his length to go up and tap the ball away and actually forcing the incompletion. That's amazing. And then you have the other where he is on that out route and he is tracking it and he dives at the last minute and knocks the ball away. These are the wins that a defender can control. And that's ultimately how you grade or how you should grade a player's success. How, can, how do you win? When do you win? And how consistently do you achieve it? Because that pick six was great, but he couldn't control a lot of what happened with that pick six. He couldn't control that DeForest Buckner reacted. All he could control was that he was kind of roughly in the right area and that he caught the ball and ran. And that's cool, but I'd much rather you be able to carry a Mike Evans, turn your head, knock the ball away, break on an out route, dive, knock the ball away. That's forced incompletions. That's repeatable. That's how you win. And that's ultimately what makes great cornerbacks. And so hopefully that's, that's the trajectory that Akella Witherspoon is on uh, this season. So Mike Evans told him after the game, did you know our plays? If that doesn't tell you how well Witherspoon played, nothing will. And I'm glad that you brought up him being able to force those completions. Even the first down that he gave up, he was all over that route. Like he jumped the route. He was right in the hip pocket. It just was a good throw. And sometimes good offense beats good defense. That did not stop him from making other plays. He got beat one time all game, in my opinion. That was to Mike Evans over the middle for 14 yards. Boo-hoo. If you are guarding these level of receivers all game and that's the only time you get beat, that is a very, very good, very good game. He just looked more confident, man. He looked uh, looked like he trusted what he saw. He was breaking on routes, both forward and backward. And like you mentioned on that one, that deep ball, I don't think he's able to find and locate that pass last year. He was he was confident, though. He like you mentioned, he pinned him to the sideline. A lot of guys will just let them run parallel. But he just closed that space, found the ball, tipped it away. It was beautiful, man. He, he had a really, really good game. I was very happy to see him play like that. All right. Well, that wraps up our coverage of the win against Tampa Bay. Let's get to some quick hits, some notable items that we think uh, were important to point out for the Tampa Bay game or any of the midweek stories. And before we get there, let's take just a brief break to hear from our sponsors. All right, we're back with some quick hits. First off, it seems like Robert Sala, all that quarters coverage he was giving us in the preseason, well, I don't think he's going to carry that into the regular season. We still saw 50% cover three snaps against Tampa Bay, 27% cover one, which was not too far off of their percentage last year, which is about 23% cover one or man coverage. And I think the man coverage is really effective early on in the game, and that's when the Niners stuck to it. But ultimately, they reverted back to their heavy cover three ways, So we didn't see a whole hell of a lot of those quarters coverages that we were looking for. But hey, you know what? There is still time and there's still that game against Arizona. Uh, But tell me a little bit more about Vita Vea, Kyle, (laughs) because Vita Vea was having his way with the 49ers interior. Yeah, it wasn't just Richburg. Let's make that very clear. He, whoever he was going against pretty much, mainly I thought that he was getting the best of um, Richburg and person. But yeah, they just, if it was one-on-one, he was going to push you back, and there was not much that you were going to be able to do about it. The 49ers tried to run up the middle a couple of times on short yardage situations. Not the greatest idea. Uh, Vita Vea just couldn't be moved, man. They couldn't do anything about it. And he he made a couple of those plays, but sometimes he would force them to bounce it one way or the other, and somebody else would make the play. He was just he was just better than the 49ers were, and and that's that's pretty much it. 
the 49ers try to run up the middle 11 times on their 32 run attempts, and they average just 1.2 yards a carry. Uh, when they, of course, rush to the ends, they averaged more than five yards a carry. So it's probably not smart to go up against Ndamukong Sue and Vitavea, and yet that seemed to be an integral part of Kyle Shanahan's game plan. But Bruce Arians decided to go, uh, his decision to go for it in the fourth quarter after the penalty, absolutely the right decision. That's a decision that scared me because that's when you, if you, if you fail, you pin the 49ers deep uh, and it's not likely the 49ers will score. So ultimately, I don't think that lost them the game. I think that actually helped them win the game despite the fact that some folks disagreed with that decision. Something else to note is the Niners have been using tempo at various points in the game. They started out quick at the beginning of the game started again quickly in the third quarter, that strategic use of tempo can be super-duper effective. Uh, and so I think it's something to monitor over the course of the next few games. And lastly, your boy, my friend, Rich Sherman, he did not have a great game. Yes, he had a pick six, but he had a defensive holding on the touchdown. He had a P.I. early in the game. Um, in this game, he was the 49ers' second best or maybe even third best corner. Yeah, he was, and he did not have a good game. There's nothing wrong with saying that. And also, just because I think he had, uh, he had two penalties, right? Yeah, he did. He had the the holding on the touchdown, and then the pass interference, which, if not for review, doesn't get called. Oh Jesus, that's what it was. <laughs> of course. All right, we're not. I'm not going to go on a tangent there because that can be an entire episode. But NFL, if you slow everything down, it's going to be a penalty. Okay, Sherman. He was beat. And he was beat a few times. And I don't have any problem if he is the second best corner on the team. That is okay by me. Uh, I want to go back to a drinking, a possible drinking rule or a drinking game addition. When the announcer says, oh, gutsy call to go for it here. When the, the, the math tells you that you should go for it. The math suggests every everything about this decision is the right way to do it. But when it's fourth and one on the 36 yard line and you're going in and the announcer says, Oh my God, what a gutsy call to go for it here. Nope, not gutsy, just a common sense call. That's it. I'm with you. That requires people understanding what the math says though. And I, I don't know that, that we can do that. Uh, and so lastly, I forgot almost, I forgot because with Tampa Bay threatening with about five minutes left, the game is still in doubt. It's Alex Sack out of the rescue. He gives up dun, a sack. Dun, dun, dun. I know. He did it, man. We did it. We put it, We put that sack on his name, uh, and, and he did not disappoint. But let's get to the final part of the episode today, Kyle. Let's talk about the Week 2 game against the old Cincinnati Bengals because the Bengals were a team that, of course, have a new head coach in Zach Taylor, someone that comes not too far from the Shanahan tree. He was one of the people that was touched on the forehead by McVay and ended up yeah. looking into a head coaching job. But this was a team that was basically counted out, especially for that week one. I think they were double-digit dogs to the Seattle Seahawks going into week one. And yet they kept it close and maybe even should have won that game. They went in, with, of course, without A.J. Green. They went in without their two best offensive linemen. And yet Cincinnati outgained Seattle 196 yards uh, by 196 yards on their home field. And they had 395 passing yards to Seattle's 161. And... They dominated time of possession, 35-50 to 24-10, and yet they still lost that game by one point. Is this going to be a, a, an easy game, a game where the Niners are favored, uh, or do you think this is going to be another pick em tight one where the 49ers are going to have their hands full? 
Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So they were ten point underdogs, by the way, against Seattle. And when you when you mentioned that time of possession, another good point to where it's 2019, just because they were up 11 minutes in time of possession does not mean that they're running the ball all over the place. I think their numbers were I think they had 34 total rushing yards in this game. Dalton was throwing the ball all over the place, which they're going to be the secondary is going to be challenged. That's for sure. It's a different type of uh, it's a different type of offense. There's a lot of speedy guys, a lot of shifty guys as opposed to, you know, the big contested catch guys that Tampa Bay has. But it'll be fun. It'll be a fun game, I believe. And I think going back to the head coach, Zach Taylor, he, he had them prepared, which is a good sign for a rookie head coach, man. He, uh, they didn't look they didn't look like they were lost. They didn't look like they were they know they didn't know what they were doing. The offense was like I mentioned, they were they were just moving the ball up and down against Seattle. That was fun. Well, talk to me a little bit about John Ross because John Ross had uh, just a breakout game. His, he had seven catches for like a bajillion yards uh, and two touchdowns. <laughs> and, and I mean, this was this guy is like winning fantasy games left and right. He was, of course, the the son that they discarded, the wide receiver that was like thought to be a bust. And now all of a sudden, you get an offensive minded head coach, and it's like, oh God, I forgot why he was considered a top five pick in the NFL draft. Um, and he had a great game. And, and I think overall. You, you, do you think that's something that John Ross is going to be able to sustain, or do you think that these are kind of more more yards that are like, you know what, it was a good one game, but I don't know that he's going to be able to do that uh, or sustain it several weeks in a row? Yeah, context is definitely key here. So he had a great game. He had seven catches for 158 yards. 55 of that came at the end of the half where it was kind of just a heave at the last minute. He, he went up and made a great play. But I mean, come on. Why is he one on one to begin with? And the I believe the DB just mistimed his jump. He also had three drops that were pretty key, but he made big plays, man. He that he showed off that four two speed where he was just running by Seattle and they had to they had to respect his speed as well. And that helped him get open underneath on a couple of nice routes. He, he looked really good. He did drop. I did mention those three drops, but he looked like he is a guy that can be a consistent threat. And I would probably feel more comfortable with Witherspoon on him just because Witherspoon can turn and run just a little bit better than Sherman can. But yeah, he he looked good. He looked legit talented. And the 49ers are going to have to be aware of him. Yeah, I think this is definitely going to test the 49ers safeties. And it's going to be something that they should prepare for. And, and I don't know that they're going to necessarily need to bracket him because I do think Tyler Boyd, especially in the middle of the field, can be dangerous. But but it will be something the 49ers safeties will need to account for because his speed will threaten them, especially in that deep third. Now, when you look at the Bengals' run game, though, they're coming in a little bit, a little hobbled. Joe Mixon, he's on my dynasty team. I, I, you, you hate to see it. You hate to see the ankle injury. <laughs> you really do. But he is day-to-day with an ankle injury. He did not play, I believe, the second half of the game against Seattle. And now, of course, that load falls on Giovanni Bernard's shoulders. So Joe Mixon is a very, very explosive running back. He's someone that can punish the 49ers especially along the inside or the interior if they're going to be suspect to those those interior double teams and and so if the if basically the Bengals are coming in without maybe their top running back and their top wide receiver this could be another game where they're primed to win and steal a win where like you said at the end of the year it's not going to matter that those players weren't playing all that will matter is that they're 2 and 0 and primed to really continue a, a what should be a really positive run this year yeah, absolutely. And I think that yeah, Mixon, Mixon is a guy that can hurt you. 
and everybody knows, everybody's seen him play, I imagine. So there is a pretty good fall off between him and Giovanni Bernard because Bernard's probably not the greatest inside runner. And, you know, the linebackers, I imagine, will have a lot better time maybe arm tackling him with a lineman hanging on them or trying to be aggressive in that sense. Whereas a bigger guy like Mixon, uh, good luck bringing him down with an arm tackle. Yeah, you know, ultimately, I think that this is going to be uh, last year. The rap on the 49ers was that they just couldn't cover people. Uh, and so you, you were going to be able to do what you wanted with them uh, when it came to defense. And you weren't going to throw to Richard Sherman because you didn't have to. So you throw everywhere else and you were going to succeed. I don't know that that's going to be the preferred strategy of offensive coordinators this year. I think they're probably going to attack the interior of that defense there. And, and I think that's what's going to be interesting to see the Cincinnati Bengals do, or if they do that. I mean, we know Zach Taylor is going to be a zone run team, but it would be interesting to see if he still goes with the wide zone versus the inside zone. Because for the wide zone, of course, the wide nine is exactly built to beat that wide zone play. I mean, if you remember from scheme month, that wide zone alignment was something that they, they built or they put in to, to go against Edger and James and the, and the Indianapolis Colts. And so I'm curious if Zach Taylor is going to stay with that wide zone or if he's going to go more towards an interior running game. And if he does, whether or not the Niners can contain that because they've got a decent offensive line. I mean, Trey Hopkins had a great game against Seattle. And if he continues that play and they continue being able to run against the Niners, on the interior, I'm, I'd be interested to see what that defense does in order to adjust. Yeah, it's gonna be, it is going to be interesting. We don't have the sample size just because they only ran the ball 14 times. Uh, looking at some of their rushes here, so four times they ran just middle right, just like right up the middle. That was their pretty much the most they, they ran it. So it's you would assume so, especially what the 49ers just did. But again, that might not be in his game. Like he, most coaches do what they do, and that is why most coaches get fired, because they cannot adjust. Um, it'll be interesting because Giovanni Bernard is not a middle runner. He rushed up the middle twice, and it was for negative one yards. This is not his bread and butter, not his strength. So, you know, we'll see, man. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You're, you're not wrong. Most coaches do what they do, and that's what gets them fired. I love that. That's a good one. Put that on a t-shirt, my friend. Uh, you know, when I think when you're looking on the flip side of the ball, can the 49ers handle the Bengals' front? Because we talked about Weston Richburg and his problems along the interior, but one of the better players from the game against Seattle for the Cincinnati Bengals was Sam Hubbard. Sam Hubbard is an edge defender, and he had a ridiculous game, especially when he was going up against German Effetti. And I don't know that he's going to have as much success against the 49ers tackles, but the front four, the Bengals, is still pretty strong. I mean, you've got Sam Hubbard, who had a great game against Seattle, but you've also got Geno Atkins, Carlos Dunlap, Carl Lawson. And Carl Lawson is, of course, he's going to cycle in and he's going to threaten along the edge as well. If the 49ers end up not being able to kind of get up on the Bengals like they were able to late in the game against Tampa Bay, and they're behind and they're going to have to throw... It will be interesting to see what pressure does to Jimmy Garoppolo because he was not successful in the clean pocket this game, which is the thing that he's usually pretty good at. Um, and, and so if he's not going to continue his success with a clean pocket and then you add pressure on top of that, uh, I wonder whether or not they're going to be able to they're going to be able to have success against the Bengals. That's a fair question, because like you mentioned, clean pocket, clean pocket, the offensive line blocked very well, just considering, you know, and I know Tampa Bay doesn't have great edge rushers, but 
Yeah, he had plenty of time. He didn't make he didn't take advantage of that. And if you watch the Bengals, Sam Hubbard, whew, he was all over the place, man. He uh he was he was basically living in Seattle's backfield. But they also have Geno Atkins, who everybody knows is a beast, and then Carl Austin, who's coming on strong and Carlos Dunlap's been there forever. It'll be fun, man. I don't I don't know what's gonna happen because I don't think that if we talked about this game before the season started, we wouldn't be like, oh, you got to worry about Sam Hubbard. You got to be able to stop him. But here we are a week into the season. How much of that is on Seattle being Seattle? And how much is that as Hubbard just growing into being a better player? Because he's not going to be able to go up against Fetty this time. Joe Staley and Mike McGlinchey are quality tackles in the NFL. Like, it's, it'll be a difference. There's no other way around it. So, I am going to be interested to see if Cincinnati brings a blitz more as well. Knowing how Garoppolo played last year, are they going to bring more than four? So there's a lot. There's going to be a lot of talking points on this one. I'm not sure where to, sure where to go on it. Well, so the Vegas line's 1.5, uh, and, and so basically the Niners are uh, ultimately. Uh, let's see, are they favored? I don't know what the the plus or minus here. I forget which team this is for. Uh, no, that's a good question. Yeah, so, they should be favored, right, by one and a half. They, no, they're actually one-and-a-half-point dogs. Oh, really? Yeah, that was interesting. So they started out as one-and-a-half – or, sorry, one-point favorites on Sunday, and that line has moved. I don't know if this is overreaction to Cincinnati being better than what they initially – what Vegas initially thought. But, yeah, they uh, the 49ers are a point-and-a-half a point underdogs against an Andy Dalton-led team. Interesting. So it looks like the over-under on this game is 45. Uh, so what do you think happens, Kyle? Do you think the Niners win uh, or do they lose? I think they win. I think this game goes over. I think that there is going to be a lot of points, a lot of big plays. And I think that it's going to be a lot like the game last week for Cincinnati where they, they're going to have a chance to win at the end and they're going to come up short. Uh, probably probably with another sack. I don't know if it's going to be another sack fumble like it was. But, yeah, I think there's going to be big plays, explosive plays. And ultimately, the pressure from the 49ers defensive line gets them. I think Buckner actually bounces back in a big way this week. Yeah, I do too. I'm going to be curious whether or not the heat in Tampa affected people even that didn't get IVs because I do think that had a lot to do with how the defense performed, especially along the interior. Um, I don't think this game actually clears the the, the over uh, under. I think it stays right at 45. I think it's 21-24. Uh, and, and I do think that the Niners win because you know what? I lose nothing by predicting the Niners win and God damn it, I'm an optimist. <laughs> uh, okay, so, let me ask you real quick. Are you going to predict... The 49ers win every game. No, I'm not. So I've done that before. When then I, when it gets real bad. Of course. When yeah. it gets really, really bad. Like we're talking Tom Sula bad. And you're like, you know what? We're, I'm never going to predict the Niners win. So I'm going to predict the Niners win every goddamn week. So the one week they win, I'm going to be like, yes, we Told did. You. We did it. I never lost faith. Um, but yeah, but no. When it comes to more realistic years <laughs> where the Niners are actually relevant, uh, I try to figure it out, but I do think this game is going to be tighter. I do think the defenses are going to have a couple of good plays. I, I do think that because the systems are a little similar, the Niners defense will feel a bit more comfortable going against this type of offense. Um, and so I don't know if that's going to help or hurt. Um, I don't even know if it matters, but you know what? In my head, maybe it does. Uh, so <laughs> that's ultimately what I think. So again, we're both predicting Niners wins, uh, which is great because that means they cover uh, just with a little high scoring, higher scoring affair. Uh, on your end than uh, for me. Although last week, I think we both predicted the Niners would win, uh, and I predicted the over, which had hit the over, right? 
Sure did. Yep, absolutely. So uh, I don't know that we're going to track the uh, the over-unders, but we will track the wins and losses. And so far, we are both 1-0. Let's hope to make it 2-0, man. Let's hope to come back again on a win Wednesday next week. 28-24 was my score prediction. 28-24. I've got 24-21 to 21 Niners. So thanks again for tuning in this week. You can always catch me on Twitter at Better Rivals. Kyle, where can they catch you? KP underscore show. And if you have not caught the Better Rivals drinking game and you are a degenerate, you hate your liver, you get bored, and or you just like tweeting out the words drink, make sure to catch uh, the drinking game on the Twitters because I will post it again before Sunday's game. So thanks again, everyone, for tuning in. And as always, go Niners.